0: to do the film because I love the idea of doing a fairy tale Um, doing something imaginative doing something that children would love and that gives me uh, the idea gives me great pleasure some people call it science fiction I don't even consider it science fiction I consider it a fairy tale in science fiction uh, you're very concerned about leaving a spaceship on a planet, because I mean, not the oxygen or the gravitational force is not the same as on Earth, or not what your body's adjusted to, and so you must uh, take all that into consideration. Or it's considered very poor science fiction. It's fairy tale. That's the environment. That's the context. But you can literally do anything, and if I believe it while I'm doing it, the audience tends to believe it too. So that's a fairy tale.
1: Hello, Star Wars fans and moof milkers everywhere. Welcome to episode number 218 of Blast Points. This is Jason. And this game. And in honor of The Empire Strikes Back's 40th anniversary, this week we are talking about the director of The Empire Strikes Back, Irvin Kirshner. Kirsch. The Kirsch, as the kids call him. The other guy that directed a Star Wars movie. The first, who is this guy directing this Star Wars movie? I've never heard of him. The first time that ever happened. Well, it's interesting now looking back on Irvin Kershner, because I feel like in the era before the prequels and during the prequels, his name and The Empire Strikes Back were put up on this pedestal of... Why can't Irvin Kershner come back? He made the only good one. He got Star Wars and he helped Star Wars and all he's the one that really got it. And I feel like now you don't hear that as much. You don't hear Irvin Kershner put up on this well he did it right kind of pedestal anymore.
2: Yeah, and it may just be the result of of now all these movies just existing for so many years and they're now being twice as many movies almost as there were back then that it's just even empire strikes back is as up on a pedestal as it once was is still just another one of the stories in the in the star
1: wars for a while it was the only darker middle chapter but now there's the two other darker middle chapters but in today's age of 12 theatrical release Star Wars movies, 14 if you count the the Ewok movies in Europe. Which we do. Empire stands out amongst those 14, still for a lot of interesting reasons, where the roles that Kirshner and Richard Marquand played are so important and still not really talked about enough as being people that added key ingredients to the Star Wars formula, the recipe that still exists today, that all the new films, the new TV shows, even the animated stuff, everyone's trying to get that Star Wars recipe just right. And it's like it's like a secret pasta sauce that no one knows the exact recipe. And everyone's trying so hard to recreate the there's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of Kirschner, a little bit of Marquand.
2: Well unlike any good like family recipe even though there's, there's like a rough recipe. But as the recipe goes on and every time you make it, you might be out of something and add something else. And it's one of those things that you can't really write the recipe down. Someone just has to watch you make it because it's not really set in stone. Because what Star Wars was when the original film came out versus what Star Wars was after Empire came out, and there were now two films, and there was really kind of almost twice as much ingredients to star wars because empire really was the basic recipe from the first movie with a whole bunch of new ingredients thrown in and then by the time return of the jedi comes around it's those two sets of ingredients with a few more herbs and spices tossed in that yeah you kind of i think forget especially now how much what we think of as star wars was evolving as each film came out and still, I mean, we're still adding more ingredients to the mix
1: to this day. It was really fascinating going in and reading as much as can, digging through the old books and magazines and stuff, getting ready to do this, reading about Kirshner, and that happening the same time as the first two episodes of the Disney Gallery Mandalorian show, where so many of the things they were talking about, especially in the first one about the director's, where Lucas was bringing in people like Kirshner and Marquand to be there on the set, to do the work day-to-day, but also add their own unique ingredients to that Star Wars pasta sauce. Like John Favreau was saying, bringing in smart, creative people
2: who can solve problems and bring their own spin
1: to something. And that was Irvin Kirshner. And with Empire being so early in that Star Wars lifespan and the, the Star Wars style that everyone talks about and obsesses about and compares everything to nowadays. And it was just barely there. There was just that one movie. And it was kind of after that, like, well, where do we go? How The, the mantra going into Empire Strikes Back was, not only how do we make a sequel to the most successful film of all time, goes even beyond like a, the most successful film, a, a, a cultural phenomenon. How do we make something better? And what does that even mean? And it, it, often during the production and beyond, it seemed impossible. It could or would happen. There were many doubts that exceeding what Star Wars was seemed impossible. And one of the biggest questions I've always had, I've always wondered with Irvin Kirshner, is how much of Irvin Kershner was in Star Wars. How much and I've, I we wondered that when we did our, our Richard Marquand episode, what really was their unique thing they brought to the the pasta sauce, the Star Wars pasta sauce. Because just like Lucas had on the original film, Kershner had an an enormous amount of pressure. And a lot of people didn't even believe that a sequel to Star Wars would do anything. Because I think when they were making Empire, there was like a whole thing where people were saying, oh, Jaws 2 didn't do as good as Jaws 1, and sequels weren't quite the guaranteed hit. And Empire was very different in tone than the original Star Wars. And
2: yeah, because if anything, sequels were almost a guaranteed flop at that time. There was There wasn't really a precedent for a sequel doing as well or better. Than the original. And a lot of sequels were just the same movie again.
1: And there were some people that wanted George Lucas to do it. There's there's a story that Lucas and Coppola went to go see Star Wars in a theater in San Francisco in the summer of 77. And I guess Coppola, it's just a packed, packed theater, and Coppola's sitting there, like, this is great. This is awesome. They're sitting in theater. The quote, and this is from the J.W. Rinsler's Making of Empire Strikes Back book, which a lot of the information in this episode is from. If you don't have this book and his making of Star Wars trilogy books, they're priceless. They're so good. So, yeah, they're sitting there in this theater, and according to the book, Lucas is so emotionally numb. He can't enjoy it. Even as the crowd is cheering and clapping, the Death Star explodes, and Coppola's like, having a great time eating popcorn. Lucas, no, oh, I can't do it. Making Star Wars for George Lucas was such a horrific experience, and he was determined he would never do it again. It wasn't what he envisioned. In, I think in his mind, he was thinking he wanted to make the prequels. That was the kind of Star Wars he had in his mind, and just 1977 Star Wars was not a good time for him. And very, very early on, right after the release of the film, when people started, first started talking to him about a sequel, he said he, would, he didn't want to direct it. He would supervise but not direct. And he was saying at age 33 in the summer of 1977, he said he was retired from directing. And it makes sense because, you know, he, they had to do a sequel. There was ILM. ILM hadn't been paid since June he knew Fox, 20th Century Fox, would do his sequel to Star Wars with or without him. Like if Lucas, like I don't want to do it, they would have made just 20th Century Fox's version of Star Wars 2, which sounds wonderful right now. <laughs> I I, I kind of want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but he, wa- he you know, he he loved what was accomplished with ILM, even though it almost killed him. He wanted to keep that going, and it was kind of like, well, okay, I guess I have to make things official and. We've got to kind of get this stuff going, because now there's all these other people depending on me to do this thing. And so that summer, he brings Ralph McQuarrie on board and starts taking his first notes on Chapter 2. And it's funny, in Rinsor's book, there's the first things he wrote down for Chapter 2 of Star Wars. And there are general themes, and he wrote down fun-slash-adventure Mystical slash religious intellectualism, and then underlined must remain fast-paced, intercut several planets slash stories. Sounds like Empire. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it sounds like Star Wars. Yeah, it's 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 all there. It's all there on the page. It's like if you're the pasta sauce, it's got to be tomatoes in it. Maybe some oregano. Whatever whatever else you want to build in that on top of that, it's up to you. <laughs> So production art begins and he starts talking to Lee Brackett about the screenplay, who he gives a lot of freedom to, only to not be able to use about anything that she, she wrote. And even during this Lee Brackett time, Gary Kurtz is out there looking for a director. You know, Lucas said, I'm retired from directing. If I directed Empire, then I'd have to direct the next one and the next one for the rest of my life. I've never really liked directing. I became a director because I didn't like directors telling me how to edit. And I became a writer because I had to write something in order to be able to direct something. So I did everything out of necessity. But what I really like doing is editing. So, <laughs> And then Kurt's talking about uh, trying to find directors that it was more difficult than they had thought to find someone who would write in the terms of their attitude toward the material. Which totally makes sense, because like, I guess they talked to Alan Parker, who had done Midnight Express, and he went on to do Fame and Pink Floyd the Wall. They talked to John Badham, who did Saturday Night Fever. But everyone turned it down, which makes sense. I mean, you, you probably had a bunch of people coming in being like, like we said, the Star Wars pasta, recipe, pasta sauce recipe was completely undefined. And you probably had people saying, I want to put Coca-Cola In the pasta sauce, that's going to make it taste great.
2: Well, or people who were intimidated by trying to recreate the sauce without a specific recipe. Because that seems to be something that kind of returned to haunt Lucas a little bit with the prequels that we found out later that he did try to get some people to help to maybe direct them. And everyone's like, no, you got to do it yourself. Whenever he asked his buddies for help, they're like, no, you're the one, you're the person that has to do this because he's got the recipe
1: in his little head. Under <laughs> that, a gorgeous head of hair. A hair is there to protect the recipe to the Star Wars sauce. <laughs> so, so Lucas tracked down someone who he knew he could trust, someone mature, someone who he knew could handle what he went through with making the original film, and that was Irvin Kirshner.
3: One fateful day, I received a call from George Lucas. I thought it was about playing tennis, because we used to play tennis together. Or it was some problem he had. No. He said, would you come to lunch at Universal? Sure. So I arrived. We had a wonderful lunch in the good dining room. And then he said, Kirsch, I want you to direct the second Star Wars you hear the quiet? Well, that's what he heard too, because I looked at him and I went, "Are you crazy? You want me to direct the second Star award.
1: Why me?" Now Kirchner taught a class at USC in the 1960s, and he would judge various student film competitions. And he would come and speak to classes, and he was a a working director. He was like a working Hollywood director. He had done tons of TV going back to the 1950s. He had done some films. He had just directed Before Empire, this movie The Eyes of Laura Mars, for producer John Peters, who John Peters was legendarily hard to work with, and Kirsch figured out how to deal with him, and it's like Kirsch was just like a really nice kind of easygoing guy who was a professional who had been doing this for decades.
2: And there's a good, I don't remember the exact quote, but something Lucas said to him, how he, he chose him because he had all the skills of a Hollywood director and all the experience of a Hollywood director, but he wasn't a Hollywood guy, which is a very Lucas thing to be, He was still young, angry Lucas who really didn't want to have anything to do with
1: Hollywood. Yeah, because Kirsch was very outside the system and he would just do kind of whatever and wasn't really concerned with making blockbusters. He wanted to make quality films about characters and story. Yeah, I could just imagine young George Lucas just being like, speaking my language. (laughs) One big thing with Irvin Kirschner and George Lucas where Kirshner was one of the judges at the 1968 National Student Film Fest, where THX 11384EB won the top prize. So Kirshner had you know a big role in kind of getting George Lucas to where he was, where eventually he could do THX 1138, and he was able to do American Graffiti. And according to Kirshner, he, he followed Lucas's career. All that time and kind of like he went to go see American Graffiti in the theater and it's like, I remember this kid from USC. I remember his student films and this him winning the, the, the top prize and was kind of proud of him and what uh, everything he was accomplishing. And then there's conflicting stories on how he got hired. Right. There's some stories where they were playing tennis, Kirshner and Lucas, <laughs> which is a wonderful visual. Whenever I try to picture that. Because they were they they did play tennis on occasion. That was like their thing. They how they kept in touch. Trying to imagine nineteen seventy seven George Lucas wearing like little white shorts and like would he put a headband on that hair and like the glasses? Probably. (laughs) I'm emotionally (laughs) numb. I'm just trying to keep up with your curse. Then there's there's stories that like Gary Kurtz, like, and they met on the Universal Lot. Regardless, somehow, some way, they met with Kirshner, asked him if he would be interested in doing the next Star Wars. And in Rinzer's book, Kirshner told George Lucas that he would only do it if he could top the first one. And I guess Lucas laughed and said, Well, it's not a sequel, it's part of a continuing saga. Well, and Kirshner was, he was 54 at the time. And he, he was a really interesting dude. He was, he was a musician. He played several instruments. He was an artist. He was a painter. He was a photographer. He was in World War II, like working on B-24 bombers. He had studied at USC. He studied anthropology and history, much like Lucas. There at USC, just like Lucas, he discovered movies and film. He was into Zen Buddhism, which he always tried to talk about, Zen Buddhism.
2: Yeah, because it's such an really interesting part of that whole relationship is you Lucas was such the hot young anti-Hollywood director and the fact that when it came time to kind of pass on directing Star Wars to someone else that he didn't find someone else young and hot and angry or even younger that he actually found someone older and more experienced which is not what you would really expect which I guess is a very George Lucas thing to do, to not do what you would think and what the most obvious thing would be. And it's almost like Star Wars coming to life where he, he kind of found his Obi-Wan and let Obi-Wan make the movie because it was someone he respected from his school days.
1: and And it's this repeating thing that's mirrored on screen and off with the apprentice and the master, the student and the teacher the parallel with the the mandalorian the disney gallery show like all the stuff filoni is constantly talking about with george lucas and lucas kind of giving the sequel to his movie to his former teacher this person that came along at one time in lucas's life and he was probably just like oh
4: that's who i want to be one day kershner was a director and he taught at usc where i went to school he had directed uh some movies and a lot of television and uh, I thought was a very talented director. His name came up pretty early on as somebody who was, I feel, a very major talent that had been overlooked by the film industry. He's very thoughtful and intellectual, and I think was able to understand the line between the fact this is kind of an entertainment movie, but there's a giant subtext going on, and sort of pay attention to both of those things.
1: And even the Kirshner talks about how he had seen Star Wars in the theater with his 10-year-old son when it came out. And he, he talked about how he saw it through the eyes of his son. And that's how he really appreciated it. Kirshner's first real experience, exposure with Star Wars, though, is a fascinating story that was in a Star Wars Insider issue where he was at a party at Francis Coppola's house. Right? I think the story goes. And Lucas is there. And he's got the trailer for his new movie, The Star Wars, or just Star Wars. And he's like, hey, everybody at the party, okay, let's all watch my new preview. And people are like, well, Yeah, let's check out George's, the preview for George's next movie. How are you going to follow up American Graffiti, George? And they, they play the trailer, the first trailer for Star Wars and we've all seen this trailer we all know what it's like and we watch it though this trailer with the eyes of like oh look at this this is people's first exposure to star wars but if you watch that trailer again and think get star wars out of your brain the best you can and just think about that and you're watching it at a party at francis coppola's house
0: (laughs) somewhere in space this may all be happening right now 20th century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. Star Wars. A billion years in the making. And it's coming to your galaxy this summer.
2: I like how he talks about everyone said they thought George was making a cartoon. <laughs> like, that's not a movie. That's a cartoon. That's not sci-fi.
1: Well, I get, well isn't there in the – there's a thing where after they play the trailer, there's, like, discussions going on in the corners of the party. Like, how how do we tell him that that looks terrible? Yeah. Right. Who's going to be the one to tell George? But they, people saying they were worried for him. Like, I – I don't know if this is going to go too good, George. (laughs) (sighs) So flash forward years later, and he agrees to do the movie. They went to George Lucas's house, and he introduced him to everyone already working on it. Lee Brackett, I think, was still working on the script, and Macquarie is making paintings. The basics of The Empire Strikes Back kind of get started. Then after... Lee Brackett leaves the picture, and Kasdan is brought on. I feel like that's when the the pasta sauce starts really getting perfected. It really starts cooking. <laughs> <laughs> they get all the pots out, all the ingredients are out. Lucas is on the story. Kirshner is on the characters. Kasdan is on dialogue. And everything you read about this period of time, it sounds like this magical time where they were just like sipping the sauce as they were making it, and they are like, it tastes good, but you know what? It could be better. More salt. They
2: have a really big wooden spoon, and they're just (laughs) taking turns, stirring the pot.
1: Outrageously big wooden spoon, just comedically huge, (laughs) where the three of them can all sip at the same time. They're they're all sitting around the pot with their
2: feet, dipping their feet in the sauce.
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> so before long, Lucas and Gary Kurtz and Kirshner are out location scouting in Norway and, hey, we're going to make the sequel to Star Wars. And it, it, But even then, it was a different kind of thing because it's not like it was even then an Irvin Kirshner film. He wasn't approving the designs of the ad walkers or if Boba Fett should wear a poncho or not. It, his his role was kind of clearly defined when he got hired on where he was character-focused and he was there to be on set dealing with the actors. But during this time when they were figuring out the screenplay, Kirshner was with Kasdan going over every single line of dialogue. And you just got to think, like, around this period of time, you had Macquarie doing art, you had Joe Johnston, you had all these people, Lawrence Kasdan, you had all these people, like, Seemingly like the height of creative power and energy, just crafting this movie and what, it, what is the sequel to Star Wars and where does this story go next? Because, I mean, in our Lee Brackett episode, you could see where it could go, like what the opposite of The Empire Strikes Back could have been. How, if someone didn't get that pasta recipe, you could ruin it really quickly with just a little bit of the wrong ingredient. You end up with taco sauce. It's a fine line from salsa to pasta sauce. Well, the other thing during
2: this time too is I I want to say from some of the interviews, Krishner said he spent almost a year working on storyboards as well. Like he storyboarded, he did a rough storyboards for a lot of the movie, and then had the gave those to the to the real concept artist, storyboard artist, to kind of clean up. But he was kind of thinking of the visuals of what the characters were doing. During this time as well, as they were kind of coming up with the story, which is also, I think, when you get to the finished film, kind of one of the things with Empire that that gives it a different feel from the original film. And also, I think we find out led to some of the tension during the film is how much Kirshner films the movie that he sees in his head, as opposed to Lucas, who films a lot of footage and finds the film more in the edit. All that time thinking about the storyboards, I think probably led to that. Of he kind of could see the movie what he wanted to film and was filming to the storyboards and not so much just getting a lot of footage.
1: Well, and, and Kirshner's big thing was the, the the people. Like he was when he was planning it, when he was doing those storyboards and stuff. He was he's focused on the characters, the people. He, Kirshner's big thing was he had kind of come from more of like a European style cinema of long close-ups on people's faces and really getting reactions from actors and filming that. And that's what's the most important, which is not really the George Lucas kind of way <laughs> of filming and shooting. Like, again, that's some of the key ingredients that Kirshner brought in. You know, it's, it's cheesy to call it the the human element that Kirshner added to The Empire Strikes Back. Cause it's not like that's not there in A New Hope. But if you go back and watch A New Hope, A New Hope is more kind of like later in the prequels. Weir-
2: weird. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's it's the raw Lucas versus the Lucas with cream and sugar in it. But it's also, I think, yeah, the whole idea where Star Wars was, in his mind, a documentary. And he's just kind of filming things that are happening versus Empire is more... Cinema and, yeah, like focusing on the characters and being about the acting as opposed to being about the story that's happening. And maybe bringing the the specifics of the story into more focus than than Lucas was focused on. Because he's kind of more focused on the big picture and everything
1: that's happening as opposed to kind of lingering on details. And all along this time, right before filming is getting started, they're just figuring out the most important part of the movie, one of the most important parts of the movie, Yoda. And it's almost like everything you read was that Kirshner was kind of dreading Yoda. Because here you have this director who is, like we said, into these close-ups and into character and into expanding character and these close-ups of emotion. And your whole middle of the movie, your whole emotional, philosophical center spiritual center of this movie is basically a puppet is a puppet that isn't finalized. That's actually going to work until like the day before they start, start filming. And
2: other than just not even having the puppet and necessarily even having a design for it when he came on or for a lot of the pre-production, there was never really a movie where you tried to pass a puppet off as anything other than a puppet and here not only was it a puppet but it was a puppet that was supposed to represent a living breathing creature interacting with a human which even if it wasn't like the one of the main characters and the main character giving advice and wisdom it would have been scary enough to just have this puppet show up and talk let alone being arguably the the star of the whole movie i can't even imagine like How that must have felt.
1: (laughs) 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 Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying.
0: I worked so long with the script that I know pretty much everything that's expected of the scene. And I just shoot the picture. And as I go along, I vary. I change my concept often because of what I shot before. Or I learn something or I learned that I don't need a certain scene, or I learned that I haven't shown a certain person before, and I have to show them now. There's always, there are about a thousand little considerations before you can stage a scene, and you pay off things.
1: Filming begins in March of 1979 in Finns, Norway. Before they left for filming, George Lucas's only advice to Kirshner was, don't expect things to work. (laughs) And that proved very true once they get to Norway. It's extraordinarily cold. The film was freezing. They have so much clothes on people that they can't go to the bathroom. The eyepieces on the camera would cloud over because it was so cold. If you touched the camera with your hands without gloves, your hands would freeze to the camera. Back in the UK at Elstree Studios... Lucas would show up for a week and just watch the chaos go down. And
2: don't forget one of the
1: studios, one of the stages
2: burned down before they started. <laughs> yeah. They were supposed to have, was it eight or eight or nine, however many stages they were supposed to have. The one that uh, Kubrick had for The Shining burned down. So that was like before they even did that. So
1: in, in true Star Wars fashion, it's like anything that could go wrong did go wrong. So I guess when when Lucas is, like, hovering around the set, Kirschner would ask him, like, is everything okay? Is everything going on? And Lucas wouldn't really talk very much. There's a quote here in the Rensler book from Lucas. Kirsch wanted to give the film a slightly more serious tone than what I had in the first film, but without taking it completely out of the Saturday matinee feeling. He wanted to get deeper into the characters and make the jokes a little less flippant. Kasdan expands on that too where Lawrence Kasdan is saying George doesn't particularly like telling people what to do he didn't like arguing with them he didn't like that part of directing he didn't want to do it and so he reinvented himself as a producer mastermind of these movies which had started with the creation of Raiders what a great producer does is he guides everyone without making them feel controlled George was very good and funny and charming in a Georgian manner So things are, you know, it's chaos and things are going wrong, but they kind of knew that would happen. That was just making a Star Wars movie. Wasn't there was a thing, wasn't there, where where a light exploded and almost killed Mark Hamill?
2: Yeah. One of the things um, Irving Kirshner brings that up in the uh, DVD commentary that the Bakta tank almost killed Mark Hamill because just a few minutes before they were supposed to put Mark in the tank, the big spotlight over the tank. Exploded, and all the shards of glass fell into the water, into the tank. So if he would have been in the tank, he would have been, like, shredded up by broken glass. Oh, my God. And then Mark Hamill did get hurt at another part of Empire, right? Didn't he He hurt? He sprained something or when he dove into the snowbank, the fake (laughs) snowbank?
1: That's the thing going through, like, the making of Empire book. Everyone was getting sick constantly. Everyone was getting hurt. Like, Peter Mayhew passed out.
2: A lot of people passed out. Peter Mayhew was passing out um, when they were filming the carbon freezing scene. I think the Ugnats were passing out. <laughs> not to mention Mark Hamill got in a car accident before they even filmed the movie. Well,
1: and as it goes on, as they're filming in the UK more and more, Kirshner really starts to have his doubts on, is this right? Because it's, it's clear that it's different. He's not really getting clear guidance from George. Like, yes, it's this is good, this is bad, you're, you're doing fine, I don't like it. He says, I was com- constantly insecure about whether the tone was right. Tone is everything, an indefinable thing like quality, Kirchner says. True discipline is from within. Every artist, every painter, every novelist, everyone who does anything must do it for himself, must have his own discipline. That is really what tempers the character. That's what makes it possible to do something beautiful and to become something beautiful. That ultimately is what the film I'm making is about. And the movie at this point already is 15 days over schedule, required a ton more money because everything you read about Kirschner on the set was the shots would take a long time because Kirsch was very actor focused and he was always wondering, well, can we do it a better way? Is there a different way we can do this? And I guess there were things already in like the Hollywood like trade reports that Star Wars 2 was over schedule, over budget, this problems on the set. So then Lucas shows up on the set again. And some people talk about it, but it's I feel like it's kind of forgotten that how much Lucas put on the line for The Empire Strikes Back all the profits from Star Wars were on the line. And if Empire didn't work, there would be no Lucasfilm, no Skywalker Ranch. You had these toy companies and these merchandise, everything that were counting on this movie being good. And not no, not just good, just great. Better than Star Wars. And so, yeah, here comes Lucas and he shows up on the set and he wants to see some of the footage that Kirshner had filmed, about 50 minutes so far, and originally Kirshner says no. (laughs) But eventually they do, they watch it, and Lucas is mostly okay with it. He said like a couple things. I think he said that there weren't as many fast cuts as Lucas normally liked, but uh, Lucas, I guess, took all the Battle of Hoth stuff and went back to San Francisco and started to work on all the Hoth battle stuff with Paul Hirsch. But the, a classic example of Kirshner, kind of his whole thing of always trying to find a better way is the whole, the, the Bespin Freezing Chamber thing, where the original script goes where Han says, Chewy, no, stop it, Chewy, save your strength for another time. Chewy, the odds are better. And then Han says, yeah, I know, I feel the same way. Keep well. You better chain him up till it's over, he says to a guard. And then Han takes Leia in his arms, and she gives him a passionate kiss. Leia says, I love you. I couldn't tell you before, but it's true. And Han says, just remember that, because I'll be back. And There's a whole part in Renzler's book where they spend an entire day just going over how that could be better. And you can imagine, at the time, you're saying, okay, well, you're spending an entire day on those lines of dialogue. And what Technically, that's fine, the way like it was written. But what we got, and because of him spending that entire day and talking to the actors and figuring it out and then figuring out some more, you've got one of the most iconic moments in the entire Star Wars saga, in any film. It's every time they ever show any clips of remember how great Star Wars is? There's always I love you, I know. You can get towels now. <laughs> it's on t-shirts. Yeah, because they even talk about some of that that day
2: and that scene in the uh, DVD commentary, too, of how when they finally did the last few takes with the I love you, I know, Kirshner's joking that the crew wouldn't leave because they didn't believe that they were really okay with that and that they were ready to be done. Because as much time as they spent and then ultimately ending with the more or less ad-libbed line, yeah, people didn't believe that that they were really going to be
1: happy with that. Who would have ever thought that would be as iconic as it is and such a classic? And sure, all the people that were looking at the numbers and the budget swelling out of control and the being over-scheduled. It's just like, why are you spending so much time on this? And There was even a point where 20th Century Fox was considering taking over the movie and removing Kirshner from being director. Things got very tense with Lucasfilm and Fox where they were like, no, you can't do that. Yeah, Kirshner is saying, I was never sure if anything was right. I was guessing. And then when I realized Lucas had financed the picture himself, I was shooting a guessing game with millions and millions and millions of his money at stake. This put a terrific burden on me because I knew wherever I screwed up, it was costing him money. That's the way film is. You chase shadows. And now all of this is going on, too. Empire is getting very, very scary for everyone involved. And they still haven't filmed Yoda. (laughs) They saved Yoda for the absolute last. Well, and
2: part of it is they haven't even built Yoda Stuart Freeborn didn't come on until later in the Yoda process.
1: yeah, back, back when we did our the the Yoda Puppet is Still working episode back a couple years ago or something. Yeah, Yoda was they were not sure if Yoda was ever going to work, and <laughs> for the most important thing in the movie, Yoda was kind of terrifying everyone, and then once they were on set, I mean, Frank Oz was kind of figuring it out as he went, and there there's a part where very early on where they're trying to shoot something for Yoda and his eyes are all crooked. Like one eye is looking one direction and one eye is looking another direction. And everyone on the crew starts to laugh. And I guess, except for Gary Kurtz and Irvin Kirshner, because they're just pissed. And Kirshner was really feeling it. I mean, you've got this swamp set where what the, the fog and all the gas in there is like, you can't breathe it. You've got, Frank Oz under the floor and all the technicians working on Yoda. You've got Mark Hamill acting his butt off with a puppet. <laughs> Still to this day, Mark Hamill does not get the credit he should. He deserves for, the, for all that scene. And yeah, there were a lot of moments where Irvin Kirshner, this is towards the end of filming, was exhausted and frustrated. And he wasn't afraid to talk about it. Uh,
0: The Bach planet is, is as you say, an extraordinarily difficult set. uh, And I feel uh, dissatisfied, greatly dissatisfied, with what I could do. Uh, The terrible thing is, here's a picture that's this expensive, really quite... almost insanely expensive, and yet uh, I had to compromise all the way down the line. I had to compromise with every shot, with the characters that we created, the, the Yoda. I had to compromise in the sequences. I had to leave things for the second unit to do that I wanted very much to do, and which is never the same as, in my eyes as I do it. I'm sure that the audience won't know the difference, but in my eyes it's quite different. Um, I'm very dissatisfied. Unfortunately, the Bog Planet came at the end of the shooting, and the pressure is on to complete it. And I think I shot the thing uh, uh, faster than uh, than I would shoot a television show. Even though, and this may sound ridiculous, uh, there are days in which I spent eight and nine hours on the Bog Planet doing. One day, I last I had just six and a half seconds of film. Six and a half seconds took the whole day. Yesterday, the second unit one shot, which took about ten hours. And I don't think the shot will be held for more than seven seconds.
2: Yeah, he always seems to be joking now, at least later in in life, about the Yoda parts, about how there's only two shots in the film where Yoda's eyes actually blink because it never worked. (laughs) (laughs) So it seems like maybe his his, uh, anger has
1: subsided, but he's still pretty bitter about Yoda not being able to blink. The fact that Yoda worked as well as it did. And the fact that those moments in The Empire Strikes Back are like the heart and soul of that movie and what gives Empire the the unique tone that it has and has kind of made it the classic that it is. It's like we were talking about with Kirshner's serious attitude and his... He treated Yoda no different than he would treat Mark Hamill or Harrison Ford or Carrie Fisher or Billy Dee Williams with the close-ups. And he took Yoda seriously as an actor in this film. He never shot it like a puppet. He never treated it like a puppet. He was dedicated to taking it seriously. I think about the scene, the classic scene with Yoda raising the x wing out of the swamp, the way Kirshner moves the camera so subtly in those scenes and the way he films Yoda so perfectly in those scenes. And I guess that's like, You can look at that moment and you can ask, okay, is there a part like that from the performance of the actors or the way the camera moves in Star Wars or Return of the Jedi? And there's really not.
2: Yeah. On its own, visually, Return of the Jedi is great. But going, if you're watching Empire and then you put Jedi on, your eye notices that things are a little... (sighs) a little bit wilder, a little bit looser looking than what you were what you were seeing in Empire Strikes Back. There's definitely a a refined composition and look to Empire Strikes Back that is very different from the first and third films, which are much more flash Gordon in your face, comic booky, just all over the place wildness that is definitely from the eye of Irving Kershner. And I think the other thing that's so great with everything with Yoda, and this came up in this week's Mandalorian behind-the-scenes thing with Deborah Chow talking about how so much a Star Wars thing is this a, a puppet talking to a human. Where else do you see that? And where else do you see that taken seriously? And even to this day, all these years later, it doesn't happen very often. And it really, if at all, and it was, I mean, and that's such a core part now of the Star Wars ingredient is just this idea of you have a a guy in a rubber mask or a puppet or now maybe a computer generated creature talking to a human and it's, and no one's acting like it's anything other than something you see every day. And that's so
1: much what Star Wars is. Well, it's like Taika said in last week's thing that it doesn't, Star Wars doesn't take itself 100% 100% seriously, but it believes in itself. We said a thousand times already in this episode that could have gone in such a different direction if Empire had not been the movie that it was and you didn't believe in Yoda and if Kirshner didn't believe in Yoda and take it all very seriously. And it would have been much different
2: if even if Lucas had decided to to direct Empire. I think the first time we really saw a human and puppet interaction wouldn't have been the same and may have been not better or worse, but different and may have been more kind of goofy and fast and loose and not so dramatic as we got with Kirshner. And and the fact that our kind of first interaction of seeing this (laughs) first contact of puppet and human was directed in such a Serious, almost like mature way with Kirshner kind of made everyone like, oh yeah okay i'm I'm into this and allowed Star Wars to kind of get wilder with it in the future.
3: George was an amazing producer. he gave you freedom. he knew that as a director, if you feel choked, you can't work well, and I am very much an improvisational director, and so he went along with me. One day, it was early morning, we started shooting the plane coming out of the water. I look over, and there's George standing at the door, way back. I said, George, yeah, come over here. He reluctantly came over by the camera. I said, you know what we're shooting? Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. and. We said, okay, let's try it. We submerged the plane, three-quarter, and made out of plywood. Now, action. We raised the plane, and as it came out of the water, the wings fell off, because they were full of water, and the wood couldn't take it. And George stood there, no emotion. I said, all right, how long will it take to fix it? We can do it in uh, an hour. Fix it. And I went and had coffee with George. You okay? Yeah. Is it going all right in your mind? Perfect. Good. Ten hours later, and we get a good take. One. Now, the usual producer would have pulled one of his two hairs out of his head. That's the usual, but not George. George didn't say a word. He saw the thing. One take, which I did many times because it took hours to set up. I did one take, which freaked out the crew. They couldn't manipulate it. a little fixed. But they got used to it. And uh, finally got the shot. The shot's 11 seconds long. It took 10 hours with a huge crew. That's the way the film went.
1: So finally, the film was done production, and now it moved into its accelerated post-production. And Lucas and Paul Hirsch started the, the, the editing process. And, you know, Lucas had come from a documentary kind of thing, like we said. He shot, like, a ton of film, ton of coverage, and just whittled away into what he wanted, where, like, You know, like we said, Kirshner came in with more of a plan, and he kind of had – he forced the editing in a certain way. And Lucas even says in the Rinsler book that in the end, what The Empire Strikes Back is, maybe more than any other that era's – start. the original trilogy is more of a blend of the two styles of what Kirshner planned and Lucas in the editing room. And that still exists. I mean, you can – like we've said, the the Mandalorian episodes. That's that's all what it is. Like you can draw a line from what Ryan Johnson's style influenced the pasta sauce to to Deborah Chow to Bryce Dallas Howard to Dave Filoni. Everyone adding their own ingredients to this thing. Well, and the whole idea
2: of taking that pure, intense, raw George Lucas flavor and mixing it with some some other more palatable flavors to entice the masses kind of really began a little bit with a new hope with some of the, uh, behind the scenes, you know, crew members and Gary Kurtz and Marsha Lucas and the other editors kind of softening the Lucasness, but with empire was kind of the beginning of the, of the collaboration of which, you know, leads to what was so great about all those seasons of clone wars of just, the madness of George Lucas being
1: tamed by all these other smart, creative problem-solving artists. When it's like we said in the beginning, it's something I always wondered, like how much of Kirshner was in the final film. And I, you know, you look at all this and you, I, it's a lot. And I think more so than Marquand, unfortunately, this was kind of the first time that Star Wars kind of branched out and, Even though Lucas was very much involved in the post-production, I mean, there's a quote from Joe Johnston in the book that when they were towards the end of the film and they were reviewing footage, George was usually there with Irvin Kirshner. The people at ILM all worked with George first. George was the big boss, and Kirshner was second in command. And Joe Johnston says, but you can't be a backseat driver if you want the film to be exactly the way you want it. You better direct it yourself, and I think George knew that. I think he probably grumbled about some stuff I know he did because I heard him
2: well, and that's another just aspect of the movie that's so fascinating is it on one hand, it was kind of George Lucas letting go of some of the control and letting someone else kind of drive star Wars and it turned out phenomenal, but it also kind of seems to have gave him second thoughts about. Giving up control, which kind of may have led to how Return of the Jedi turned out with Marquand being a little more aware of his role as the guy who deals with actors and films the live action stuff. And it seems like as much as Marquand had input and collaborated, he wasn't coming on with the same expectations that maybe Kirshner had and and feeling like... In the end, it was an Irving Kirshner film where, as much as Richard Marquand directed Return of the Jedi, Return of the Jedi feels more like a George Lucas film.
1: Kirshner said, talking about Empire later, I've, I've had two of the best and most creative years of my entire life on Empire. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I look back and it's like a good dream and a bad dream. A good dream because I worked with interesting people and it was nice to be in London. A bad dream because I had the frustration of things not working, running out of time, and having to do things I normally wouldn't do. But there's been no limit to how much a picture costs. Without the success, though, of Empire, that whole matter of how much does it cost, that's the whole thing with The Empire Strikes Back and the prequels. It was still always a matter. I mean, you can't make the infinite money movie, but it was kind of more the sky's the limit with those films. Kind of, and because of Empire, Empire raised the bar of what was possible in Star Wars. Still to this day, the quality of the of the actual finished product, and with what was possible. That's why there was
2: Skywalker Ranch, Skywalker Sound, a whole other line of Kenner figures. So much of really movies made for the next till today would be different if Empire would have been a. Flop, and none of that happened. We wouldn't have maybe ILM anymore. We wouldn't have Pixar, maybe. We wouldn't have so many things that are such an integral part of how movies are made may not exist if
1: Empire didn't happen. And as difficult as it was, I guess, before the London premiere, Lucas called Kirshner and said, hey, I want you to make sure you go to the London premiere. And Lucas wasn't even going to go. And Lucas told Kirshner, well, you 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 have to go. You're the film's director. I want I want to make sure you're there and experience this premiere. And Lucas always like always had like this enormous amount of respect, I feel like, for Kirshner. Like, what was the thing even with the special edition, where with the Cloud City stuff, like Special Edition of Empire didn't even have that many changes.
2: Yeah, and one of the insider articles they talk about. Kirshner says, George told me what he was going to do, but he surprised me with the walk through the corridor of Cloud City. I complained at the time that it was all enclosed and you couldn't see the city and it looked like a cheap set. George heard about that, so he opened up the corridor. When I went up there to look at the timing and all that, I was so shocked and he was so pleased. He said, that's a surprise for you. So one of the probably biggest changes most notable changes in empire yeah was something that had always bugged kirschner and and george made sure to do it just to keep old kirsch happy (laughs) maybe to make up for
1: uh, adding the wampa back in (laughs) which kirschner was not a fan of but but i guess he he was approached to direct the third film which eventually became return the jedi in the middle of filming empire strikes back and he said at the time he wanted to do other things, but he said he later regretted it. That he wished he could have done Return of the Jedi. It's sad because after The Empire Strikes Back, he was attached to do all kinds of movies. A lot of them fell through. He was he was going to do an adaptation of uh, Asimov's I, Robot, that, a screenplay that Harlan Ellison wrote that... It came out, the book version of it came out with this Ralph McQuarrie production art that was done for iRobot, and it would have been an absolutely phenomenal movie, and he was going to direct that, and that never got made. If you can ever find that book out there, the, the illustrated screenplay of Harlan Ellison and Irvin Kershner's iRobot, it's it's absolutely incredible. And kind of his big movie, his only big movie he did after The Empire Strikes Back, which is so bizarre, is RoboCop 2 well and the bond movie. Well the that's kind of an oddity in itself too because that was like the unofficial never say never again, Sean Connery's back. It wasn't like a it was a real Bond movie, but it wasn't a real Bond movie.
2: He was in a way like JJ J. Abrams where JJ J. Abrams all of a sudden became the guy that reboots franchises. Kirshner was the guy that did sequels and he did RoboCop. 2 and never say never again is really i guess well not really a sequel but it's a remake of thunderball so he's kind of the guy making trying to make the second one better
1: and robocop 2 was such a doomed production from the beginning with the frank miller scripts and stuff it was just bizarre weird thing and but Krishner was proud of it he
2: talks about it in some of the articles. He did that whole movie in less than a year. I think he was proud that he got it done on time, on budget. I don't know if he's proud of the content of the film, but it sounds like he was proud of the job he did getting it out.
1: Well, that makes sense. All right, I can believe that. Yeah.
2: Which is crazy to think about RoboCop 2 being made in less than a year. Because
1: Makes sense. Yeah, but it's still, I mean, <laughs> you got your money's worth with RoboCop 2. In the 20th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back, a uh, Star Wars Insider article, they ask him, does it bother you that of all the films you've done, Empire is still the one people want to talk to you about? And cool man Irvin Kirshner says, yeah, but that's life. You know, every author will tell you the book they're most famous for is not their favorite. And George said something interesting. At one point, I think it's when he... I went up to do the timing for the special edition. He said, you know, I wanted to get away from Star Wars. I tried very hard, but now I accept it. I'm Mr. Star Wars, and there's nothing I can do about it. Kirsch was very zen right up until the end. Sadly, he passed away in 2010. But nobody knew at the time. Nobody nobody was aware of his contributions to that pasta sauce. But it's the pasta sauce that's in every, every dish still today. <laughs> People are still trying to figure out the recipe, still trying to tap into a little bit of that Kersh magic.
3: I was privileged to be chosen to direct The Empire Strikes Back. It was one of the great adventures of my life and also one of the most difficult, which makes it a great adventure. I think sometimes when something is difficult, it becomes your favorite.
4: Empire was a great challenge, uh, both creatively and physically. It was the first film that I solely financed myself. We had some technical difficulties, primarily Yoda, which was a huge risk that we could get a puppet to look like a real animal, which hadn't been done up to that point. In the end, it turned out very well. I was very proud of it. That is the film that ultimately made Lucasfilm stand on its own as a film company and be totally independent. It was a difficult experience, but well worth the effort. Your step must be
0: quick. Your action, sure.
4: Yoda puppet and the Force lightsaber,
0: each sold separately. As you move your lightsaber, the sound of the Force moves with you. It can be a powerful friend. That is your first lesson. Learn it well. The Force isn't my lightsaber. The Force is in all things. Even you, my young Jedi. The Force lightsaber and new Yoda puppet each sold separately from Kenner Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back collection. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise.
1: So at the podcast reviews... You know what's up. If you listen on something Apple when you're done listening and you write something nice about the show on there, we'll read your review on an upcoming episode. We haven't had a new review in a while, and it's making us really sad. It helps us move up the mysterious Apple Podcast charts so more people can find the show. But let's keep the magic going. Write us an Apple Podcast review.
2: And after you write us a review, head over to our website, blastpointspodcast.com, which is the best place to find back episodes. If there's episodes you missed, you can use the search function and figure out where those episodes are. And then follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, sign up for the Super Chill Group. We are still doing our watch parties all through May. And we have... The Empire Strikes Back
1: funny enough this coming weekend. Who knew? That's pretty convenient. I wonder how that happened. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we've got the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon. Where every weekend we've got episodes recapping the Disney Gallery Mandalorian show, which has been so good. Yep, just last
2: weekend we had episode 2 I believe that one was called Legacy They were digging into the Star Wars Lucas Legacy Looking forward
1: to seeing what they talk about this Friday But that about wraps up episode 218 here Talking all about Irvin Kirshner. Kirsch Always fascinating And, uh, and yeah, thanks everybody for listening Talk to you later May the force be with you Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you.
3: who wants to know what's going on inside, so he gets up on his (laughs) tippy-toes. We had to do a special rig to make that happen. I said, I want him to get up on his tippy-toes. So they worked all night, and they made him get up on his tippy-toes.
1: (laughs) Me to force, be with us.